and welcome to the Marketing Show podcast. This episode is brought to you by our partner Canva. Canva lets you design anything and publish anywhere. We use Canva to create all of our designs, even the podcast artwork you might be looking at right now. On today's episode, it's week seven of our mini-series with Nathan as he navigates the wild world of the Antler Accelerator program, where top aspiring entrepreneurs attempt to form new businesses and pitch for investment. It's kind of like Love Island meets The Apprentice. This week, we learn all about unit economics and the importance of breaking down the metrics that matter when deciding on your business model. We also dive into planning an exit for your company so that you can begin with the end in mind. We hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review while you're there. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back, Nathan, for week seven. Tell us, how's your week been? Well, it's been a good week. Uh, Actually... Not that the listeners can see, but I have a beer in my hand. So clearly celebrating at the end of this week, which is good. Wild. Uh, not going to have an Elon Musk style podcast. So it's, uh, it's, <laughs> all, it's all good. Uh, no, it's been a really good week. So I think bouncing back, I think after sort of some of the, the low points of last week where, you know, was working with a, a co-founder and, you know, went through some sort of struggles and decided to not work together by the end of the week it was a bit tough. Um, but actually... This week, officially uh, have found a new co-founder and we've worked together for the full week. Uh, it's been going really well. I think we, we gel you know, exceptionally, exceptionally well. And it was actually, funnily enough, the way things work out. Uh, my co-founder is actually someone I met very early on in the program, actually before the program even started. Um, and we got on really well. Um, she's fantastic. She's a, um, an ex uh, front end developer from Koala and Hypages. So really experienced uh, across both marketplaces and e-commerce. Um, and we just gelled really well. You know, the, the vibe was great. We both had very similar personalities, but complementary skills, which was great. Um, but actually at the very beginning, uh, we didn't necessarily have uh, sort of, I guess, the same passion on the idea. Um, and we sort of were like talking about the different ideas that we wanted to work on. Um, and we sort of said, okay, well, look, we'll explore different paths and we'll, we'll keep going through the, through the Antler program. And actually, you know, come now, you know, we're into the, uh, the seventh week. And in fact, we're, we're working, working together again. I think we sort of did the rounds and, and sort of saw everyone and had a lot of different experiences. Um, but we sort of were drawn back to each other and sort of thought, actually, no, like this feels right. We should give this a go. Um, and actually, as we worked together across the week and really got into the weeds of the idea, it actually turned out that uh, it was a really, really productive and fruitful week. We, we achieved a lot um, and we're, we're making some really good strides towards the investment committee. So, no, I'm, I'm stoked. I've got the beer. I'm celebrating. And uh, no, it's, it's, it's been a really positive bounce back. Look, we're really happy to hear that. Um, and we can tell that you've had a better week this week. You, you seem like you're in really bright spirits. Can you tell us a little bit more personally about Ads? What type of, type of person is she? Yeah, so my, my co-founder's name's Ads, uh, Adelaine, uh, but Ads for short. Uh, and she's she's brilliant. She she's just a, a force of nature. She's got so much bubbly energy. She has a great can-do attitude. You know, she she takes on every problem and just works through. You know, how can, how can you solve it? How can we get to this? Very sort of growth mindset, but just approaches everything with you know such emotional intelligence and such empathy. Um, and and really also is because of that empathy, really focused on like what the consumer is going to get out of an experience. So I mean, for for the website that we're hoping to build for Rightpaw, you know, having a great user interface and user experience is super crucial. So having a co-founder who is just so attuned to the needs of the consumer, you know, building platforms that are all about 
um, you know, conversion rate optimization and really making the, the journey so much easier for the, for the consumer to navigate um, is, is really, you know, a blessing. So I feel super privileged to get to work with, with someone of her caliber and her quality as well. You know, she's got over 10 years experience in building marketplaces and e-commerce projects um, and also has been in startups the whole time. You know, she was one of the earliest employees at High Pages uh, and she sort of grew with them for, for nine years. Uh, and then also joining Koala, which is one of the hottest startups in Australia at the moment. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's almost the, the type of person you dream about getting to work with, but I guess stumbling across them uh, in sort of the, the midst of, of building a startup, if you were trying to do it outside of a program like Antler, it would take you such a long time to find someone, not only of her quality, but also of uh, who's ready right now to, to build. Uh, so I think it's great that Antler's been able to sort of set this up and has been able to sort of bring these people together. Um, but I think we, we get on really well. I think we, it just feels natural. It feels right. We can be ourselves around each other. Um, and you know, you, you're, you're getting into a marriage in a way, you know, you're, you're going to be spending a lot of time with them. So it's great that we can sort of spend a lot of time together, still enjoy our company uh, and have a laugh along the way. Yeah, we're so glad to hear that you've been able to track out with someone who sounds so cool and we really hope we get to have her on the podcast one day. Outside of um, meeting a lot of different people this week and also having a few new experiences, did you learn anything particular about yourself this week? Um, I think this week for me, it was very much about learning the, the value of resilience and just, you know, being able to bounce back, I think, from from that sort of low point of, you know, I don't necessarily you know i've come halfway through the program i've worked with a couple of different people i thought thought i'd sort of made really strong headway and then to come sort of crashing back down to earth i think it's just those dealing with those sort of up and down roller coasters of um of, of, of the startup journey and then just being able to sort of push through and know that it's going to work out for the best uh it, it's it's really a strong, a strong lesson of, of resilience you need to constantly be practicing. Um, we actually had the CEO of Temple and Webster uh, come in this week to give us sort of a founder feature about his experience and about his, his journey from basically shipping boxes at the beginning of Temple and Webster to sort of coming back on board as the CEO to sort of turn the whole company and brand around. Um, and one of the questions that I actually put to him was, you know, how do you manage I guess, how do you manage your emotions, but particularly how do you, you know, in, in the face of such sort of crippling self-doubt uh, as, a, as a CEO and as, you know, a lot of people have imposter syndrome, how do you sort of deal with that whilst also projecting confidence as the CEO at the same time? People look to you as the leader. You know, how do you consistently uh, project confidence when even maybe you're not entirely sure of the vision? Um, and in fact, you know, he joked and said, you have to lie a lot, <laughs> um, but no, I think in, in all seriousness, he was basically saying that, um, ultimately you, it is a lonely journey and your job as the CEO is to be the positive face of the company and to constantly keep moving things forward, even when, uh, things look at their, their most bleak because your, your employee base and, and your team look to you to lead the way. So even those sort of small moments of, of, of weakness can actually have huge ramifications for the team. It's a lot of pressure to put on yourself, but it is a lonely journey as the CEO or as, as the founding team of any startup. So I think that's definitely something that's not going to go away. I'm going to have to be dealing with that consistently throughout uh, the coming years. So even though this was a extremely small speed bump, I think in, in the greater scheme of things, you know, it does just teach you that you need to just keep bouncing back um, and really, really try and just build your resilience 
uh, as, as you go through the journey. So that, that was probably the biggest sort of personal hurdle that I overcame this week. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Thinking about when you're a CEO, you almost have to become quite a good actor uh, in the sense that not lying, but putting on that brave face. I, I can't imagine like what other role you would learn how to do that in as you lead up to a CEO role. This mm. is quite interesting. And you realize that like you, you, all, you always have like a megaphone on, you know, because when you're the CEO, you know, everything that you say becomes either gospel or, you know, something that's that's sort of taken throughout the business. So you've got to be really careful. And I'm, I'm definitely not at this stage yet, but I've, I've heard this from a lot of CEOs that, you know, even the small comments that you make get amplified around the business and can get turned into a strategic direction, even when you didn't intend it to be a strategic direction. So being really sort of careful about how you present yourself is important, but also extraordinarily emotionally taxing. So it's, it's I guess, just it's part of the journey and, you know, part of the the joys of being uh, the CEO. Yeah, I think we've all been in that position where we've heard at work those rumors going around, oh, but, you know, the CEO, James, said said this, so we have to do it. It's, it's yeah, very relatable. Totally. And you hear a lot about CEOs having those late night conversations with people that they trust, either within the business world or outside of the business world. Were there any advisors that you could reach out to this week or you could pick up the phone to call and talk about your CEO experiences too? Yeah, I think that I, I thankfully over the last couple of years have built out some some personal advisors that I can sort of pick up the phone to and, and have a chat with. Um, I mean, it's really interesting. I think some sometimes the the best advisors that you can have though are, are your your family and your immediate immediate friends. Like I I um, I'm lucky that I've got a really great relationship with my with my dad, who I get to you know call up and speak to and go out for coffee and sort of talk through some of these things. And, you know, he's had a background in the corporate world as well. And, you know, getting to sort of bounce these ideas off him has been really valuable for me to sort of understand, uh, you know, not, not only does he understand the, the business world, but he understands me. And that's, you know, almost like a, a fantastic um, sort of double insight to be able to have. Um, so funnily enough, when I'm having a, you know, a personal crisis or, or having a business crisis, Family sometimes be the sometimes the first people that I turn to, but of course in the business world you also have some great um, advisors that uh, that you built up from your career. But also Antler puts you in touch with some great advisors. They've got a huge advisor network. So even this week, you know, I've been reaching out to some of our coaches to really talk through business model to really understand, you know, what is our right go to market strategy. Um, we have a great uh, PR uh, advisor who is really great at dealing with. Uh, sort of stakeholder management and especially in an environment like the pet industry where you've got loads of competing uh, organizations you've got breeder organizations and rescue organizations and charities and and peter and the rspca and loads of people how do you sort of find a way to unite them together and to sort of cut a swathe through uh, all of these stakeholders particularly when some of them are you know a little bit uh, sort of fractious with each other so i think that having those advisors when you've got those sort of little problems and you can just pick up the phone and have a quick chat too. Um, that, that's been a really useful part of this week. Um, so I've definitely been leaning on a lot of both personal advisors, uh, but professional advisors this week as well. Mm-hmm. Bringing it back to a personal level, Nathan, how's your mental well-being and energy levels been this week? Um, definitely on the up. Uh, I think after the, after sort of, yeah, the sort of the downward slope of the roller coaster last week, I'm, you know, right, right back up again after having spent a week working with ads. Uh, it's been, it's been phenomenal. And I think it's amazing what working with the right person and just feeling right sort of can do. 
Um, and it's not that I didn't feel that with some of the other people I worked with. Um, but I think this week it's just that, you know, we've consistently made progress. And just to see, like, even the small things that we've been able to do, like, you know, literally on Monday we started working together for the first time. And by the end of the week we had a fully functioning website. We were running our first AdWords campaign and we were sort of building leads and generating interest. You know, the fact that we were able to do that within one week was just amazing. And also credit to ads, you know, she had to get up to speed on the on the project. You know, we had to sort of make sure that we were at, at an equal founder level of, I guess, involvement. Because obviously I, I'd been thinking about Rightpool for quite a while and she had just come onto the project. Uh, so it was, you know, a lot of upskilling and trying to get her on board. Um, and credit to her, she she came at it with sort of a full force, the, you know, all of the energy that she brings. Uh, and she's been able to sort of get herself up to speed. She's read through all of the consumer interviews, all of the, the research that we'd done um, and just said, I'm going to sink my teeth into this and I'm going to just bring everything that I can. So, I mean, when you're working with someone who just dives in like that, um, it just fills you with so much confidence and gratitude. So I'm definitely, you know, I think from a mental perspective, um, definitely riding, riding high this week. Um, and I think that's another thing both uh, her and I appreciate is that you got you have to you have to take in the small wins when you can you've really got to cherish them and sort of have them sustain you through some of the the colder darker times so it's it's definitely uh definitely and it been a good week and we we sort of took in those small wins along the way and when it came to learning within the antler program this week what themes or topics did you focus on so i think the the learnings were very much around i guess for us building building demand and building supply so building that marketplace up um i think you know we we worked on both sides of the marketplace you know how do we try and build some interest and test traction and try and see whether there are consumers that are interested in this proposition even if it's like at a very basic level and we haven't built the entire marketplace yet can we basically manufacture a solution that we can test to see if there's people interested um, and then on the supply side i think trying to get uh, I guess some traction with with people on the platform, people who are selling pets and, and get them interested. Um, I think that's probably been the hardest part is that it is a huge legacy industry that you need to break into. It's been running for 20, 30 years, um, basically entirely offline. So trying to basically bring that online change habits, super, super difficult. So you really sort of need to, to think through your approach and really your strategy as to how are you going to, to bring people on um, methodically because ultimately it's going to going to take a lot of effort a lot of manual grunt work just to constantly go through one by one but ultimately as with any marketplace the first people that you bring on it is all hard sort of pedal to the metal work so you know we're, we're under no illusions as to how hard it's going to be but i think the theme for this week has just been sort of those small incremental gains on both sides of the marketplace really trying to sort of understand more about what's going to entice them to join um, and the pain points are very different on both sides. So every single time we speak to a consumer, every single time we speak to a breeder or a rescue shelter has given us more insight into how are we going to build a solution that works for them. And have you guys found any systems yet for how you communicate together or how you choose to prioritize? Do you have any post-it note strategies? Are you using any softwares? Yeah, we're, we're big on Trello. Uh, I think I mentioned it before. We we definitely have put everything in place in Trello and we just use uh, use that to basically keep... Uh, keep track of everything uh also uh you know standard google suite stuff i think as a startup you need to be frugal use the free tools where you can so you know google drive google docs google sheets all of the google suite has been really good um, i don't work for google uh, but i will plug their stuff it's very good and free 
Uh, so that's been really useful. Um, and and yeah, just I think using those sort of as like a, as a general overview. And then of course we use Slack to communicate on bigger business uh, issues and uh, sort of as a, as a way of sort of keeping in contact. So I think just, you know, the general productivity tools, you've got to use what's out there, um, use what makes sense and, you know, try and save costs where you can when you're starting your business. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, we want to talk about building a business model this week uh, and specifically the the idea or the concept of unit economics. Can you walk us through what that is? Sure. So unit economics is fundamentally, a, it's a really important part of uh, your business P&L. So effectively, the unit economics is at a single unit level of your business, what does your P&L look like? Um, basically running through from revenue to profit to overheads to sort of your underlying operating margin. Uh, is your business profitable uh, or, or what does your profitability look like at a single unit level? So if, if you take a, a simple product view, if you were selling one uh, bottle of shampoo, uh, what does your profitability look like at a single unit or unit level of one? Um, and that's effectively uh, what the, the idea of unit economics is. So as you obviously there are some businesses that are profitable from day one they work their business model uh, and unit economics works at a single unit level there are other businesses that you need to reach a certain threshold or a certain number of units sold before you reach profitability and that that could be lots of things for lots of reasons you know minimum order quantities or or various sort of um, uh, scale thresholds that you need to meet Uh, but the idea of unit economics is really stripping it back to first principles and saying uh, where, where does my profitability lie? At what scale? Um, and then obviously that also determines, is your business scalable? Because if your business is profitable from day one at a unit economic level of one, that's going to be very attractive to investors because you know you're, as you're scaling, your profitability scales with you. If you're saying to investors that we need to reach a certain critical mass before we reach profitability, then obviously that becomes more of a risk factor. And actually, there's been a big shift away, I think, in the VC environment from businesses that uh, continually lose money, uh, which has been, you know, that's been the dream, I think, in the VC world has just been reinvest in growth, reinvest in, in building the business, make a loss. You know, Amazon made a loss for 20 years, only reached profitability the last few years. We can do the same. So how can we... Uh, you know, how can we basically do the same thing? And actually, there's been a real turn uh, in investor sentiment, which has been how can, you know, you need to be profitable earlier. And that's been the real push from VCs is, you know, there's been too many loss leading businesses and particularly businesses who have IPO'd recently. And actually, uh, the share price has, has tanked because they're still not profitable and they're losing money. And as the sort of uh, the P&L gets made public and, and very transparent, they realize sort of what's behind the curtain. Uh, and profitability is a really uh, important metric now, I think, in the VC world. You know, gone are the days of being able to sort of sell the sell the sizzle um, and not have the sort of the underlying unit economics of your business in, in order uh, before you scale. And what do you think is driving that change? Is it the broader economic climate? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely not uh, an economic commentator, but I think that businesses are just becoming more risk averse i think um you know the last last couple of couple of years you've seen a lot of money being pumped into uh big big businesses that uh have 
actually in fact not uh, not run you know run their course i think there's been a lot of unsuccessful ipos recently that probably have really set the trajectory for this i mean even businesses that haven't ipo'd like like we spoke about brandless a few weeks ago um you know that had 240 million of capital put sort of um pushed into them by softbank and they closed their doors uh, only a few weeks ago so you know, I think business uh, businesses and VCs are becoming increasingly uh, aware of the risks of backing businesses that only reach uh, profitability five, ten years down the track. And realistically, as much as we need to have long-term visions and, and really believe in businesses and, and help them grow, it's just more risky if you take a bet on a business that isn't profitable early on. Uh, so I think it's I think it's just. People, uh, the VCs have been burned. I think it's it's definitely uh, definitely more of a, a risk averse environment, and they need to sort of see a very clear trajectory to growth earlier, in order to sort of make the same bets that they used to make. When it comes to founders looking to have a look at how their profitability is tracking within their business, do you have any tips on what metrics they could look at using, which might be especially relevant to any listeners that may have fallen asleep during their basics of uh, accounting classes at uni? Yeah, so I think any any business PL uh, really is sort of structured in three ways. And, and there's lots of different PL PL structures that different businesses follow, but they all sort of fall broadly into the same themes, which is you sort of have your revenue, which is sort of like your, your top line sales that are coming through. Uh, then you minus your, your cost of goods or your cost of operating, gets you to your profit. And then underneath profit, you've got basically all of your, your overheads. So that's generally like your people costs um, and your sort of your fixed costs. And then you get to sort of your underlying operating margin below that. Um, and the other obviously point is that media, depending on the business, can sit in different parts of that. Some people put media um, in, in your overheads. Um, other people put media in your um in your sort of cost of operating and, and they tend to put that as sort of like a customer acquisition cost. So it, it really depends on your on your business and your accounting structure as to how you actually do that. But for a lot of startups, uh, it tends to um, it tends to really come down to some key metrics, which is obviously you need to, to know your customer lifetime value and your customer acquisition cost. So your customer lifetime value is how much money are you going to make from a customer over time? Um, and that's obviously very difficult to predict for a lot of uh, sort of big, big fixed businesses like your, your traditional consumer goods businesses because, uh, you know, you, you don't have that visibility of the customer life cycle. So it's much more difficult to operate. But in the tech world and the e-commerce world where you have that full visibility of the customer and the life cycle, you're able to basically attribute uh, exactly how much you're going to, to make, for them, make with them over their life. So if you recruit a customer, sign them up to a subscription, say it's Netflix, you know, you know how long they're going to likely be subscribed for. So therefore, if you know, you've got a rolling subscription cost of you know, seven, eight dollars a month, and likely they're going to subscribe with you for three years, then you know you're going to have one, you know, hundreds of dollars of revenue uh, as, a, as an average lifetime value for that customer because your churn, which is another metric to look at, uh, which is basically your percentage of people leaving, uh, is, is quite low. That actually directly affects uh, how much money you can spend with them as an acquisition cost. Because if you know that you're going to make hundreds of dollars from one particular customer over the course of their lifetime value, then your customer acquisition cost can afford to be a lot higher. So I can spend $50 recruiting a customer because I am going to re- you know, reap three, four times that uh, by just simply keeping them on, on my platform. 
So it's it's these metrics that you really need to be attuned to as a startup, particularly a tech startup. I think that's really the, the biggest point is you've got that visibility of the, of the customer across the journey. You have the ability to actually retain them and, and add value to their lives. So those are the metrics that you want to be looking at most closely, I think, which is basically, yeah, lifetime value, which is, is also similar to revenue and your customer acquisition costs, which is your marketing and media costs. So, so the relationship between CAC and LTV tend to be uh, the most important metrics for a business. And when you're looking at that acquisition cost and what cost you can afford, how would that impact the optimization of marketing or media channels? Well, I, I think you're basically just directing your spend to your most profitable channels. Uh, I think, uh, you'll again, there's an, another trend that's, that's becoming more and more uh, prominent in the marketing uh, world, particularly in startups, is the difference between paid acquisition and organic acquisition. So paid acquisition obviously is, is everything uh, regarding uh, paying for a particular lead. So using your traditional pay-per-click methods like Facebook and Instagram, using Google AdWords, uh, you, I mean, even, even TV and out of home, all paid acquisition. Obviously getting very, very expensive and particularly uh, for any startup that's looking to receive VC funding and looking to sort of grow aggressively, you need to be constantly uh, reducing your your CAC and constantly reducing your acquisition cost, which is actually leading the charge to organic acquisition, which is basically uh, you know your more typical word of mouth or uh, referral types of programs, uh, or even SEO things like that. Basically, business uh, uh, models that don't really cost you anything to acquire customers. Um, that's why actually referral is probably one of the the strongest and and fastest growing areas. You know those startups that are growing virally, where people are just talking about it and sharing. That is literal gold for a business, not only in terms of sentiment, consumer sentiment, but also, you know, they're saving you huge amounts of money by referring customers on your behalf for zero cost. So ways that you can encourage that, and there are lots of plugins and tools that are trying to do that uh, more and more now. Uh, they they are all about trying to build organic acquisition so that your ratio of organic to paid acquisition skews towards organic, brings the CAC down, uh, and actually tries to, to build your overall profitability as a business. So that's actually one of the biggest trends that I've, I've noticed probably in the, in the last year, two years, as businesses that get to sort of seed around, get to series A, reach a crunch point and go, we, we need to keep growing, but we need, our, we need to save, save cash and we need to find more profitable ways to grow our business. So I think the explosion of the organic acquisition marketer or the organic acquisition marketing director uh, is, is something that definitely speaks to that trend. We're here on a marketing show, Nathan. I think uh, you know acquisition through paid or organic means can get you so far, but we also know as you get bigger and bigger, you need to start building more of an emotional connection uh, and a brand to increase consideration. And often that is done through broader reaching media channels like TV or outdoor. How would you attribute those costs to your acquisition cost? You know what that is? I think you've really got onto one of the most fundamental challenges of the modern day marketer which is attribution and you speak to every cmo you speak to every marketeer and the biggest challenge that they have is i cannot attribute my above the line to the right source uh, and it is extraordinarily difficult i think there's that famous saying which is that you know i know that half of my media spend is is wasted but i just don't know which half 
Uh, and, and it resonates. Um, and I think that's obviously one of the great things about tech and e-commerce is that if you know, you're able to build a fantastic end-to-end experience, you can track your conversion costs uh, so minutely and you can attribute exactly where a customer was coming from. But even for e-commerce brands, you can't really determine if that's coming from TV or out of home. Uh, so it, it is a really, really difficult, difficult task. But what we do know is that the the cost per reach and the cost per impression um, for those channels is so incredibly vast. And you know what what you're basically trying to do, in in the words wise words of Byron Sharp and 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 the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, is just remain top of mind and just remain salient. Uh, and you're going to need broad awareness. And it's almost like that, that sort of acquisition funnel. You know, you need awareness at the top, but then obviously as you get further down the funnel, um, you're able to, to get more attribution as you go along. So keeping yourself top of mind via some more broad reaching channels like TV, like out of home, like radio, and then basically following that up with a multi-channel approach by being very aggressive on, on display, very aggressive on, on uh, paid social, means that there's already at least some level of recall and recollection so that you can you know, try and basically then trace the journey from there. If you're sold in an offline outlet though, it's incredibly difficult. Um, so I think if I knew the answer, I'd be a very rich man and I'd be selling that solution to, uh, to a lot of big businesses. But, but I, I do think that uh, it's one of the, the biggest sort of problems plaguing the marketing world today. Yeah, and definitely there's a bit of a lag in terms of tech in tracking those media channels as well. I know there's heaps of innovation that's meant to be coming in that space from the likes of Voz, which should be able to connect someone who's seen your TV ad through to their next actions online. But until we have that, it is a little bit hard. Yeah, I mean, and you'll notice even even more in sort of the, the age of multi-screening, you know, a lot of ads will have very clear call to actions to immediately jump onto your phones. So, you know, there are some very sort of clever ways that you can do it if you really wanted to overlay your your sort of your ad spots on TV with sort of traffic on your site and you can start to sort of see those spikes and try and overlay like the the different times of day and and the different sort of moments where your traffic spikes so I think I think there are ways that you could try and do it if you were trying to be clever Um, but I think there's definitely a technology gap there Um, so I'm excited to see what's coming in that world as well. On the flip side, while it's important to track um, as many of these metrics as possible, are there any tools or traditional methods of grassroots marketing when you're a startup that you should still be doing as a hygiene factor before we have the right technology to track it? Yeah, I think that, I mean, even as a startup, and you'll see these as you as you walk around and as you sort of you go through uh, your day-to-day life, there are still some tried and true hustling methods that tend to work. Uh, the one that never ceases to amaze me is uh, flyering. I mean, flyering is one of the most old school things you can do, but yet you see all of these big businesses, your HelloFreshers, your Marley Spoons, your Ubers, still handing out coupons at train stations, at you know, um, uh, you know, big big office buildings, trying to basically get people to sign up and offering you know fifteen dollars off, thirty dollars off your first rides, like all of these sort of dollars off because basically what you can afford to do there is that your customer acquisition cost is um, basically the discount that you're giving plus the cost of someone's time to stand on a corner, which is actually not a huge amount of money. You know, it's quite efficient. If you pay one person $20 an hour and they give out a thousand people, a thousand flyers um, and uh, you've got basically like, you know, a strong, you know, 5% of those that actually take it, take it up. Those are, those are pretty good customer acquisition costs. So flyering at a, at a general level still tends to work quite well. 
Um, but I think, you know, you can even get traction just by sort of some simple hustling tricks like, you know, post on interested Facebook groups, like get into Reddit forums, find where your early adopters are and just sort of go in and, and speak to them. Go to trade shows, go to events, uh, go to basically wherever your early adopters are going to be you need to be there and it's cost efficient for you to be there because you're, you know, as a founder, you don't have a lot of time, you, you know, you don't want to be spending huge amounts of money on acquisition. So you need to be getting there and, and just basically being the face of, of your product. Um, because the idea obviously is that if you can build enough of a rapport with them, uh, give them a great experience, then the best way that you can grow your business is then them speaking about it and the word of mouth. Yeah, it's it's low hanging fruit, isn't it? I think we can get caught up in in tech solutions for customer acquisition, but sometimes you've just got to go to the lowest hanging fruit. Totally, and it's interesting that you're paying for that guaranteed disruption in the physical world as well. That if someone's on their way to work at the train station, physically interact with a coupon, you're guaranteed they're actually going to look and interact with your brand and your product and have that moment of connection too, which can be really really cool. Yeah, and not just hope that sort of you know that your bus shelter ride catches their eye. Like this, you know, you're in you're, you're you're in their face and you're having a conversation that's real, real human impact. Yeah. And not to forget that all of that is now trackable if you give the consumer a promo code. Totally. And a big shout out to the QR code. Um, it's still <laughs> it's still a bit of an OG piece of technology. Um, but we know that with softwares like Canva, you can easily put a QR code onto your flyer um, and link it to an online survey, which can be really, really helpful. Yeah, it's, it's funny that um, the, I remember the QR code went through a real sort of um, downward trend where people were like, oh, no one's going to download the app. It's too difficult. Now you can just, uh, I found it amazing. You can just do it on your camera. So uh, credit to the, the QR, QR sort of marketing team have been able to sort of turn their, their brand around and, and get, it, uh, get it into a seamless consumer experience. Yeah, it's coming back around. I feel like when there were all the different QR codes scanning apps, it became really taboo to talk about within the marketing world. Um, and we also saw a few trend reports about people not actually interacting with them because you have to have the third-party apps. But now you're seeing them come back around. And again, at the end of the day, there's no simpler tool to get someone to interact with an online survey or um, to an online path to purchase as well. Now, moving on, uh, we talked about the unit economics and how you'd work out your P&L. And I think one of the main factors on how your P&L would be structured is based on the business model that you have. So, Nathan, we wanted to talk through a few of the different business models that you've seen that other businesses are employing. Yeah, so I think that there's a couple of different ways that you can approach this. And, and, and it really does uh, depend on the actual business that you're building. Uh, but some of the most common uh, I guess, business models that you'll notice out and about in the world today. Uh, the first is subscriptions. I think subscriptions are obviously uh, very, very straightforward. Um, this is, you know, not only your D2C e-commerce sites, but, you know, your, your big media content players as well. Um, and the beauty of a subscription is you have guaranteed revenue recurring. So you can plan your cash flow, you can plan your, um, your ongoing campaigns, and you can just manage your business in a much more structured and stable way because you know exactly what money is coming in each month. You can predict your churn rate so you know what your rough drop-off is going to be. Um, and investors really do love uh, seeing, um, you know, seeing that uh, recurring revenue because it makes the business so much more attractive to them. Um, obviously then you can just have simple transaction based model, which is, you know, you take uh, a clip of uh, a transaction that takes place on your site. Um, that's again, a very, uh, a very tried and true method and it works for most marketplace startups. Uh, and that's, you know, also, you know, your, your Ubers, your Airbnbs, you're taking a percentage of transaction. 
Um, advertising is obviously a big one. So you can have a free platform um, and basically just sell ad revenue. Um, you can have a freemium model, which is basically, again, a bit like Canva, where you have basically a free uh, tool for the public. Anyone can come on and use it. But if you want to access the the added goodies, you have to pay the premium and you sign and you upgrade. Uh, Spotify employs this super, super well. You know, we want everyone onto our platform. We want them to get so sick of the ads that they will pay to remove the ads. So freemium is a very, very uh, attractive business model as well. Um, and another another one which probably is quite underrated is the affiliate model, which is basically uh, how do you sell leads or how do you sort of sell um uh, your sort of your lead generation onto other businesses um, and there's a lot of big businesses and a lot of even small players that get a lot of money from this you know you don't need to be a big player you can set up um, a website you can write huge amounts of content and reviews and you know just a link to amazon and amazon has actually an affiliate marketing program where if you you know put a link to amazon on uh, on your blog and someone buys something from amazon you get a kickback so it works for the consumer who's writing great content and recommends a product and it works for Amazon because they get sales through to their website. So all of those as uh, sort of affiliate, uh, so as, as possible business models tend to, tend to work quite well, but obviously it needs to suit your business and, and the sort of trajectory of what you're going for. Yeah, totally. And there are so many different business models out there to choose from. Um, in preparing for this, we also had a look at a few weird and wacky business models or some, some business models that we don't really hear too much about. But when you learn about them, they're really out there and, and you probably interact with them every day. Um, one of the ones that we found is the reverse auction, uh, which is when you ask buyers to name their price for an item and the sellers compete to win the sale. Um, which is uh, something that's been used quite a lot in price sensitive markets. Um, and a key uh, a player that uses this is the travel aggregator Priceline. Um, and they've used this model for many, many years where suppliers are funding the need for discounts as the prices are slightly higher um, than something that is an unprofitable level. So it's quite a win-win for the suppliers as well because they're tapping into some consumers that are really ready to buy and they can work out the margin on there and as to how much money they're gonna uh, forego in a longer term sale um, and how much that will impact their profits. And, and usually it's a win-win and, and it's quite good if you're, if you're a business that uh, needs to generate uh, returns in cash flows in the really short term as well. We can hit your forecast. Yeah, the other one we found was the, I guess, the, the model of undercutting an existing market. So going into an established marketplace uh, and coming in with a super cut rate price versus those competitors, knowing that your profit, profit margins are going to be super thin, but realizing how much volume that you can get and therefore make a good cash profit anyway. Yeah, I think um, there's, a, again, a famous saying from Bezos, which was, uh, your margin is my opportunity, uh, which he really sort of took to heart as he built Amazon quite ruthlessly. Totally. Um, and, the, and the last more unconventional business model which, which out there, which we found was the franchise business model. So franchising has been around for a really long time, um, but it's a really cool model because it's about building one great business, which is traditionally a retail business. Um, and then when you, once you learn to run that business really, really well, you can then sell that business win wisdom, the branding you've built up, the operations, and even the admin processes to aspiring other entrepreneurs. 
Um, and they can benefit from brand awareness as the brand scales and more uh, entrepreneurs join the franchise network to scale the brand. Well, as we know, we need to stay connected and curious in the world around us in order to be at our best, whether it's in marketing or startups. So let's do what's interesting this week. And Mark, we'll start with you. Well, guys, um, I've got a bit of an entrepreneurial stereotype for this week. Um, and the thing I've found really interesting this week is my new stand-up desk. Woo! Ooh. So it's a stand-up desk I bought from Ikea. It's very, very fancy. It has the ability to go up and down, which is really, really revolutionary within the world of desks, um, which has really, really changed my life. But the, the reason I found it so interesting is that um, oftentimes, you know, Mark and I will work at our day jobs before we do the podcast, and then sometimes we'll do some podcast stuff after work. And the thing I've been loving about the stand-up desk is coming home and having a little bit of work to do on the podcast and just doing it standing up has been a really, really cool shift and change um, and the thing I've loved about standing up and doing work is that it forces you to think in a really different way I'm quite energized but also it's, a, it's building a new habit when I'm working on something different and it's making me work quite quickly because you realize after a while if you're standing for too long you're gonna start getting tired um, so it's been really a really great workflow tool to use but more and more and all it's also helped me just with my posture a little bit as well realize when you, if you spend a lot of time sitting down you do start to feel those neck pains and and, you know, maybe a little bit of a lack of energy as you're spending a lot of time sitting. So a bit of a stereotype, but I've absolutely loved it. I've even uh, loved having it set up for life admin as well now as well. So if I have any bills, they come in on one side of the desk, can smash it all out. They get put to the other side. Um, it's, a, it's a great little battle station. It almost makes me feel like I'm working in a really um, high tech kitchen. I think you just need to go all out now and just install a treadmill. And then you've got the stand up treadmill desk and then you just you're rocking everything. The best part is I saw a photo the other the day of a guy who had a stand-up desk a man bun and he was walking on like a tiny treadmill barefoot and i was like you we've, know what we've reached peak hipster i was like you know what i feel like there's that cartoon of um when we were in uh, caves and you know you see the revolution over time as to how we became standing creatures and i feel like that's the next image within that picture is us moving towards standing desks and, and walking barefoot I can already see it. Like I can imagine he's got like grass glued to the treadmill. So it's like he's walking on grass. I know, but maybe that's a great feature that this, uh, this treadmill should employ. We mm. should build it on, on the show. Patent pending. Uh <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, Mark, what have you found interesting this week? I've got uh, an analogy that I heard this week uh, or a thought, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the attribution for this, but I, it really hit home for me, which was the idea that You've got acceleration and high speed. And uh, we'll use an aeroplane taking off as, as sort of the, the analogy, which is that uh, when you take off in an aeroplane, you probably go from zero to about three or 400 kilometers per hour, and you really feel it. It feels amazing, right? But when you're up in the air going eight, 900 kilometers per hour, you don't really feel it. And it's this idea that doing things that have dramatic change make you feel things. So in life, emotionally or physically, it, it's the same impact. So if you have a routine where you do all this great stuff, but it's, it's always the same, it won't feel that great after a while. But if you change it up and give yourself challenges, it will feel awesome. So imagine, you know, you go home tonight and you have a shower, feels pretty nice. But imagine if you just spent the week in the bush without a shower and then had a shower best feeling in the world, right? I've experienced that feeling. Yes. So uh, so I, I really love this idea about sort of making sure you have enough challenge in your life and you're always sort of changing levels and doing different things. I, I think it's a really cool analogy. So some food for thought. Yeah, it's really inspiring. I like that a lot. Mm. What about you, Nathan? What do you find interesting? 
this week I went to a cafe and I saw a new app that's going to basically eliminate all of the waitresses and waiters at the restaurant, which was basically an app called Me and You. Uh, which is now at tables near you in different restaurants. And I guess the premise is that you can come in, sit down at uh, sit down at the table, you pull up the app, you order what you want, it comes straight to your table, you pay on the little square uh, me and you sort of uh, payment. Uh, sort of, it's almost like a little disc that sits at the table. Uh, you pay on that uh, and then you walk out and leave. And you don't need to engage with anyone. You don't need to interact with anyone. You can sit down and enjoy your conversation and not be bothered. Uh, and I both found it quite interesting, but also quite sort of, I guess, sad to sort of eliminate the sort of human contact within, I guess, your, your general day-to-day interactions with, with the waiters and waitresses. Like it's felt a bit strange. So I I don't know if it's going to, to really sort of take off in the, in the same way. I mean, I know that they've been running a lot of trials where they've basically had, uh, you know, um, stores where they just don't have sort of the, the waiters and waitresses running around. So I, I don't actually know uh, whether this is a consumer experience that, that people want, whether they want to just go in and sort of be completely sort of isolated and just sort of have things brought to them. Um, I miss the sort of, yeah, the customer service of it. So I, I don't know, I, I found it an interesting experience. I'll be I'll sort of my, my judgments reserved as to whether it will take off or not. Well, they say with technology that it often actually creates more jobs than it replaced. And and maybe a solve to that customer service problem is all of the previous waiters and waitresses now become entertainment at your table. Uh, And I'm sure also they'll need more security people as well to stop people from dining and dashing. Yeah, I mean, it it will definitely sort of revolutionize the, the dining experience. So, yeah, I think, I mean, maybe it will shift people to focusing more on the actual customer experience and less on the, the waiting of tables. So I think, yeah, but it'll be an interesting shift, but uh, I think I'll need to, need to go back again for a couple more experiences mm. before I make my mind up. Totally. And as anyone that's ever had a catch up in a Sydney cafe on a Sunday morning, it's very, very busy and you do need to get away and, and leave your table in pain. It's hard to get a really busy waiter. It's probably a great problem to solve with, with me and you. Well, thank you so much, Nathan. Another insightful and inspiring week at the Antler Startup Program. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. Looking forward to it, guys. Thank you. Thank you.